If you have your Bibles, would you take them with me and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you are using one of the Bibles at the end of the pew, it is on page 1050. 1 Peter chapter 3. We have been, for the last several months, working through 1 Peter on the normally second Sundays of the month. I'm excited to be able to open 1 Peter back up and continue this wonderful letter that Peter has written to churches and situations that we ourselves may face in the coming years, in the coming months, in the coming weeks. This letter is so applicable to us. And we get the opportunity to dive into it this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 3, and we are going to read verses 8 through 12. It's going to sound like Romans 12, but I assure you that this is Peter's words. These are God's words to us this morning in 1 Peter 3. Follow along as I read verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Would you join me in a word of prayer before we begin our study in the Word this morning? Father, this is Your Word. These are not our opinions. This is truth. You tell us that You sanctify us in Your truth and that Your Word is truth. And so, Father, would You, through Your Word this morning, through the Holy Spirit, would You work in us? to grow us, to mature us in Christ, to help us in our actions and in our attitudes and in our emotions to reflect Christ better. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as we have been working through 1 Peter, we have seen some things that, have, that bring us up to 1 Peter 3 in our text this morning. We have seen that in Christ we have an incorruptible inheritance in Christ that God is preserving for us and He's preserving us for the inheritance. We saw that in chapter 1. We also see that in Christ the church is being built up into a building and whereas we were, no, we, we were once not a people, now we are God's people. We see that in the beginning of chapter 2. We also see that Peter calls us to live holy lives in all of our conduct. That it happens in chapter 1. And that through that good conduct, through that holy conduct, we will cause God to be glorified. And we see that in uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. The last several times we spent in 1 Peter, we looked at three relationships that demonstrate what it means to live holy lives filled with good conduct in an evil world. And that is how we are to relate to those human institutions that are put in place by God. 
how in that day slaves were to relate to their masters and how husbands and wives were to relate to one another. And now Peter transitions from specific examples, specific relationships in the church to a general mindset that the body of Christ ought to have towards those inside the church and outside the church. As I was thinking through this, uh, there are many examples of in sports where there is a defining moment. Where there is that time, whether it's football as the clock winds down in the fourth quarter and you're down by a field goal and your team rushes to within field goal range and all of the defense's timeouts are used and the kicker is there. And the ball is snapped. We recently finished up baseball season. Baseball is, is my favorite sport. And in, and in baseball, there is that classic moment of confrontation, right? It's the bottom of the ninth. There are two outs. There are two strikes. The winning run is on second base. And it's Game 7 of the World Series. Think where those baseball players were six months ago. They were in spring training. They were going through a time of preparation, whether it was batting practice, whether it was fielding drills, whether it was base running mechanics, whether it was pitchers working on new pitches or working on their dynamics. They were working on situational awareness. What are we doing in this situation? And they were working on that all the way from spring training until game one. And then from game one to game 162. And from game 162 up until game 7 of the World Series. Each player has trained and prepared for this moment. Now what happens in crunch time? And there's the classic, here's the pitch. Foul ball. All right, we redo the count again. Isn't that the most depressing thing? You're, You're so excited. You're on the edge of your seat. Foul ball. Okay, we get to redo this all over again. Depending on if you're a a hometown baseball fan, more often than not, the here's the pitch turned into another debacle for the bullpen. Or maybe it turned into a walk-off win because depending on how the here's the pitch turned out, that moment of confrontation resulted in a special event in a similar way to how a professional athlete prepares for each game or match, Christians are called to prepare and adopt a particular mindset as pilgrims living in this world. We grow in the knowledge of God and His Word. We are called to gather with God's people and eventually we will face the test of persecution. We will face the defining moment. Will our walk with God guide us through the trial and affliction and persecution? Or will we flail in the persecution? And here Peter is addressing the church in general. He's he's preparing them as he's wrapping up the specific teaching section and exhortation. And we see this big idea in our text this morning. We see that it is crucial that Christians set Christ as their example for living in an increasingly hostile world. It is crucial that Christians set Christ as their example for living in an increasingly hostile world. 
Our text this morning showcases the work of Christ for us, even though if you look at your Scriptures, Jesus isn't mentioned once in the text. He is all through the text. For example, Jesus demonstrated each quality that is commanded in verses 8 and 9. He inherited, he has inherited the blessing of the nations and the saving of everyone the Father has given him. He has been faithful. He exemplifies what it looks like to obey the commands in verses 10 and 11. I mean, think, think with me, if you would, through the life of Christ. How, did he not refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit? Did he not turn away from evil and do good? Did he not seek peace and pursue it? Jesus knows what it is to experience the Father's favor and have his prayers heard like we see in verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. Remember, the sky opened up and as Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist, he heard the Father say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus also knows what it is to experience the Father's wrath and opposition. Consider the two passages concerning the work of Christ that bracket our text here in 1 Peter 3. Flip back with me, if you would, to 1 Peter 2, verse 21. We read that Christ also suffered for us. In verse 22, he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And then these glorious words in verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Remember those words that Jesus uttered, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ is all through 1 Peter 3, 8-12. Consider for a moment the person who's writing 1 Peter 3, verses 8-12. through Peter's got a front row glimpse to how Christ fulfills all of these things that he's writing. And he is an imperfect example of all of these things. Who denied Christ three times? Peter did. Who was the proud, brash uh, disciple that when Jesus said, I must go up to Jerusalem and and, and I'm going to be given over and they're going to kill me, that Peter said, no, it's never going to happen. And Jesus told him to turn away Satan because you are not thinking properly. That is the person that's writing these words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's heard Jesus. He has seen Jesus. Most importantly, what we see from this writing is that he has been changed by Jesus. Have you been changed by Jesus? Before we even dive into this text of of commands and imperatives, have you experienced what Peter experienced in Christ changing his life? Have you trusted in Christ for salvation? This text presupposes that. 
So what Peter does then is he builds out daily Christian life from the example of Christ. And he does it starting with our mindset. So notice with me, if you would, first this morning, our inward inclinations. Our inward inclinations. We see these take place in verses 8 and 9. Peter addresses us. He starts, finally. Now this is not a finally as in like, hey, he's going to wrap this up in five minutes, bring the plane down to a landing, and we'll be out by 12.15. This is a finally in the last of an order of things that he has been covering. So in the the last thing that he has to say on the subject, finally, all of you be of one mind. This final exhortation is directed to his entire, to all, all of his audience. So, just so that we can get a grasp of this, would all of you please stand? All of you please stand. If you're able to. Okay, if you're standing, Peter is writing these words to you. He's not writing them to the person at the end of the end of your pew or the person two rows behind you. He is writing these words to you. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. And hear what Paul writes to all of us. All of you be of one mind. Having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Peter gives five commands to his audience that are to shape their attitudes and emotions. And all five of these are distinctly Christian. They are to be of one mind. That has the idea of of being like-minded, of being on the same wavelength, of going the same direction. Peter learned this the hard way. He was out of step with God in Matthew 16.23. So when he says for them to be of one mind, it begs the question, what one mind does Peter want them to have? If each of us are supposed to have one mind, it'd be kind of nice to know what that one mind is, wouldn't it? From what we read in Peter's writing here, the one mind that Peter has in mind is like-mindedness in hope in Christ. That, That we are to all hope in Christ. But that's not it. We're not just like-minded in our doctrinal expectations of who Christ is and what He has done and the fact that He is returning someday. We are to be like-minded in humble action toward one another. One commentator writes, like-mindedness implies a willingness to conform one's goals, needs, and expectations to the purposes of the larger community. So we are to be of one mind. We are to have compassion for one another. We could translate this as sympathy. This is seeing something from another's perspective. Or as one person has put it, it is feeling with someone. We are to have compassion for one another. Third, we are to love as brothers. Full of brotherly affection. We are... We are to to love each other like we are family. 
We've seen this language so far in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 1, verse 22, Peter says this, Since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. We see this in chapter 2, verse 17, when Peter writes, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the King. We'll see this in several months in 1 Peter 4, 8, where Peter writes, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So we are to be full of brotherly affection. We are to be tender-hearted. This is a similar word to that second command of having compassion for one another. This is the same word that is used in Ephesians 4.32 where we are told to be kind to one another, to be tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. So if having compassion for one another involves feeling with someone, this idea of being tender-hearted has the idea of feeling for someone. The last command in verse 8 is to be courteous. This does not mean that we are to walk around, yes ma'am, yes sir, you know, all of those sorts of things. It has the idea of humility, of adopting a lowly mindset. And what we see in this passage through these five commands is actually a chiasm. A chiasm is, is a way of ordering terms that speaks to the importance of one and the parallel qualities of them. You can see this. If you look at the first quality in the list, all of you be of one mind. That is parallel to the idea of being courteous, to being of a lowly mindset. As a matter of fact, in the original language, those two words have the same Uh, root word ending. We look at the idea of having compassion for one another and being tenderhearted. Those are parallel ideas. They both involve feeling for someone or with someone. The odd one out, the one that stands out as the most important one, the one that stands out as, as the one that is needed for the other four is brotherly love. So, it is through brotherly love that we are able to feel with and for others. It is through brotherly love that we will have unity and that we will be able to adopt that lowly mindset. So Peter here orchestrates these terms to emphasize the fact that the brotherly love is needed in order to have these other four qualities. But the really interesting thing about these five commands is that they're not verbs. They look like verbs to us, that we are to be of one mind, that we are to have compassion, that we are to love as brothers, to be tenderhearted, to be courteous. But that's not what the original language has them as. They are adjectives. Why in the world would Paul give us five adjectives? This was something that stumped me because I come to this first and I see verb, 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 verb. In other words, do something, do something, do something, do something. I think Peter's being intentional here. And 
An adjective describes attributes of the subject. If, if you are using adjectives to describe it, it is something that, that is true of that, that it is at its essence. So what I think Peter's getting at here is that these five commands, that, that as sojourners and pilgrims, these five emotions and attitudes ought to describe us. They ought to be things that we are. Not things that we just do. But at our core, they are what describe us. That as followers of Christ, that we are of one mind. That we are compassionate for one another. That we are full of brotherly affection. We don't have to do compassion. It naturally comes out of us. They ought to be who we are at our core. In other words, Peter is encouraging us to be who we are in Christ. We've just seen all of these things true of Christ. So while verse 8 is primarily concerned with relationships within the household of faith, that those are the ones, that who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that's the grounds for our unity. That's who we ought to be humble with. That is who we, we ought to do good to all people, but especially those of the household of faith. Verse 8 is primarily concerned with that. Verse 9 gives us attitudes and emotions that we ought to share with those outside the household of God. This exhortation is also rooted in Christ. It is for our example. If you look back at uh, 1 Peter 2.23, we read, When he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. We read similar things in Isaiah 53.7. Jesus Himself commands us in His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to bless those who persecute you. To, uh, that we are blessed when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for My sake. That we are to be rejoice, that we are to rejoice and to be exceedingly glad. But verse 9 is really hard. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Did you catch how difficult verse 9 appears? Rather than return evil for evil or insulting for insulting, what are we called to do in verse 9? We're called to bless All right, Peter, don't you understand what days we're living in? I mean, come on. Seriously? And if Peter were here, he would look us straight in the eye and he would say, yep. Dead serious. Because you're not following what Peter wants you to do. You're following what Christ wants you to do. You're following what Christ himself did. Okay, so what exactly does blessing mean? I mean, like, there's got to be a way that I can do this in a sanitized way that won't, like, really require too much of me, right? Like, blessing just means that I'm not returning evil for evil. Like, I basically just am quiet and walk away, right? We are to bless, which means 
to ask for God's favor to be on those who revile and bring evil on you. When I read that, my jaw hit the floor. That is nowhere inside Aaron Armstrong's DNA. If you insult me, you know what's coming back. It is not a blessing. But here, Peter is calling us to consider Christ. He did not, I mean, think of the evil he could have caused for those who were doing evil for him. Or the insults that he could have hurled back at those who were insulting him. And he didn't. As a matter of fact, he wished for God's favor on them when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. One commentator writes this when when trying to wrap our minds around around what verse 9 is calling us to. Those who are able not simply to clench their teeth and remain silent is not what Peter has in mind here, but to maintain an inner attitude that allows one to pray sincerely for the well-being of one's adversaries. Those people are truly a witness to the life-changing power of a new identity in Christ. Why in the world should we do that? I mean, there's nothing to gain by doing that. We have everything to lose, right? But we continue reading in verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. And then verse 9 continues, knowing. There's a mindset behind why we are to bless instead of return insult for insult or evil for evil. And that mindset is that we are to know something. We are to have a reality in our minds. The reality is that you were called to this. What exactly were we called to? I mean, this is kind of open-ended. Looking at 1 Peter as a whole helps us understand what we were called to. Look at uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 helps us understand where Peter is going in his argument. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So there's the beginning of our calling. We were called to this. Initially, called out of darkness to light. But look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 20. What credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And then we have almost an exact replica of what we have going on in chapter 3, verse 9. For to this you were called. Boy, this is really difficult. We were called to do good and suffer and to take it patiently. I 
I don't know about what your reaction was when you hear those words. My reaction is a selfish, satanic, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. That's so hard. Why should I do this, Paul? Knowing you were called to this. Flip ahead to 1 Peter 5 we get the end of what we were called to. We were called out of darkness to light. We were called to do good and to suffer for it. But we hear the end of the story in 1 Peter 5, verse 10, when Peter writes, May the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So we were called to this. Chapter 3, verse 9. What are we called to? Well, we were called from darkness to light. Christ saved us. We were called to that. And as a result of that, now we are called to live for Him. We are called to live righteously in a hostile world and to endure suffering, affliction, and persecution. That's not all we are called to. We are called one day to be with Christ forever. And I love what Peter writes here in chapter 5. That it will settle you. All of the chaos and turbulence and, and upheaval that we experience in this world as we seek to follow Christ and to live according to His precepts, the dust will settle eventually. When we are with Christ in glory. When we are called to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus after we have suffered a while. That's what we were called to. Okay. I know that I'm called to that. And, and the result is the end of verse 9. That you may inherit a blessing. Our motive to adopt the mindset of who we are in Christ and embrace the path of following in Christ's suffering is that we will inherit a blessing. Think of, think of the wordplay Peter has going on here. We're not returning reviling for viling or evil for evil. We're to bless. And we are to bless because if we bless, we will receive a blessing. Think of the comparison between the blessing we give versus the blessing that we inherit. That leads Paul to say that he is willing to put up with the trifles that are in this world so that he can have the eternal weight of glory. This blessing speaks to the reality that we are awaiting the body of Christ when Christ returns. It is, it is speaking back to chapter 1 of the inheritance that is being kept for us by God. That is the blessing that we inherit. So what do we do with these inward inclinations? How, how do we obey commands to feel things? These are, in verses 8 and 9, dominantly feelings. How do we obey those commands to feel things? I think one of the keys is that we must acknowledge we don't naturally feel these things. Look back at 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Peter begs us, begs the churches he's writing to as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain 
from godly desires that cause you to bless in the middle of evil and reviling. Is that what the text says? No, I beg you to abstain from what you naturally want to do. Those fleshly lusts that war against the soul. So we must acknowledge that we don't naturally feel like being of one mind. We don't naturally feel like having compassion for one another. We don't feel like loving as brothers naturally. We are not naturally Christ-like tender-hearted towards others. And it is very hard for us to naturally feel humble because of the fleshly lusts that war against our soul. But if we look at chapter 2, verse 4, we see a glimpse of hope. We do not have these things naturally, but what do we do? Chapter 2, verse 4, we come to Him as to a living stone. We go to God. We acknowledge. We repent of the fact that, you know what? I don't naturally feel these inclinations and desires. But you naturally feel these inclinations and desires. You are love. You exhibit humility. You exhibit unity. You are tender-hearted and compassionate even towards me. What do we do with that? Look, look immediately in, in 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3. What do we do as a result of coming to God? We desire the pure milk of the Word that we may grow. We taste that the Lord is gracious. We come to Him acknowledging these natural things are not present in us. And through His Word, He grows those desires in us. But we also pray for God to work in us. And we have this comfort in verse 12 that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers. Paul is, or Peter is assuming that the church is here and that we as followers of Christ are going to be praying. And we come to God and we ask Him, hey, Lord, I am struggling to be tender-hearted towards this brother. Will you stir up in me these feelings that I do not have the ability to execute? And we have those incredibly comforting words in Philippians 2, 12, and 13 that that we are to work work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God works in us. He does work under the hood with our emotions and our attitudes that we are not able to do. He does them so that we will and to do for His good pleasure. But notice what Peter doesn't say in verse 9. He doesn't say, not returning evil for evil or reviling for, for reviling, but on the contrary, after you've mastered what I've told you, then bless. He still calls us to bless. So there is the principle that that we are to act in accordance with what Peter commands and the inward change will come. As we are in God's Word and we are obeying Christ's commands, God through His Holy Spirit will change our inside so that the emotions and attitudes that we do not naturally feel, we will start to feel. So as we look at these 
commands to feel things. Brotherly love is the chief of the five. So how much do you love your fellow brothers and sisters here at church? Do you view one another as family? What about not just here at this church, but what about other like-minded churches in our area? Do you view them through the lens of full of brotherly affection? As much as possible, we should strive to love one another like Christ does. That's the goal. And God will work in us to accomplish that. How easy is it for you to be compassionate and tender-hearted with a brother or sister? That was the one that, that was right between here all throughout the week. Because unity, yep, I, I, can, I can feel that. Uh, humility, okay, I, I can work at that. Compassion and tender-heartedness, like we're, we were running single digits on a scale of 0 to 100 this week. And the Holy Spirit was just like red target right here and right here. So how easy is it for you to be compassionate and tender-hearted with or for a brother or sister? Who do you find it hard to be compassionate towards here at church? That when someone's name is mentioned, yep, no compassion. The tender-hearted readingness is very cold right now. How do we grow in that? How can you grow in your love for them? I would encourage you to spend time considering how Christ has been compassionate and tender-hearted towards you. And how He just hasn't been in the past, but how He is right now. When you consider how compassionate and tender-hearted Christ has been with you, how can you not be compassionate and tender-hearted towards others? How can we as a church exemplify being of one mind? We have so many different preferences, and that's not even taking into account theological ones. I mean, different sports teams, food appetites, like preferences with everything. Some of you love how it feels in the auditorium right now. Some of you hate how it feels in the auditorium right now. We have tons of different preferences. How are we supposed to be of one mind? How can you exude a humble mindset? In a world of have it your way, how do you make your relationships about others here at church? This takes some thought. And I would encourage you this afternoon to ponder some of these commands that Peter lays out here in verses 8 and 9. And think through them. How can I be this at my core? How can I consider what Christ has done for me in a more powerful way so that those things that are lacking naturally in my life will not be so lacking But then we turn to verse 9. How do the commands of verse 9 play out at work? Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. How does that play out at work for you? Kids, how does that play out at school? 
How does it play out on social media accounts and pages that you follow? How does it play out with friends? When was the last time someone did evil against you or insulted you in a deep way for Christ's sake? And that's the key. It's not just that someone did evil against you or that they insulted you and you didn't like their joke and, and oh no, now I have to do this. All of this is in the context of these, are, these things are happening for Christ's sake. So when was the last time that you took flack at work, someone did evil against you or insulted you, and they did it in a deep way, and it was for Christ's sake, and you asked God to bless them? So from this text... Paul then moves to a quotation from Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, uh, we, we see verses 10 through 12 here in 1 Peter 3. They're a quotation of Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. And Peter writes, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. That initial phrase of he who would love life and see good days could be referring to loving life and seeing good days either here on this earth, in the here and now, right now while we're on this terra firma. Things will go great, your life will be extended, or the loving life and seeing good days could be referring to the life to come when Christ returns and we inherit the blessing that Peter just referenced in verse 9. I think that it's not an either or. I think it's a both. That that this is a reference to both an increase in joy and contentment in this life as well as a reference to ultimate life in good days when Christ returns. The context of Psalm 34, David is referring to the present life. And then Peter takes that and he extends it out to this end when Christ returns. So, we have this reference that Peter then takes. If we go back to First uh, Peter chapter one in verses six through nine, we see this concept. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that, per- that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So I see both aspects there. That we live in a fuller joy and contentment now by following these commands. But we also realize a greater joy and ultimate life in good days when Christ returns. We then see in verse 10, uh, the, these, in verse 10 and 11, these three let hymns. Let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil, do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. These are verbs as they appear. And notice that there is all sorts of, of pullback into verses 8 and 9 in these let hymns. Paul is using this, this quotation from Psalm 34 to reinforce what he has just told us in verses 8 and 9. 
So let him refrain his tongue from evil. In verse 9, that's literally what we were just told. Do not return evil for evil. We're told that Jesus did not return the reviling with deceit in chapter 2, verse 22. Peter tells us at the beginning of verse 11 to turn away from evil and do good. That's what we have to do if we are to not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Then we come to this last one. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Remember when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall see God? Peter heard those words. That we are to pursue and seek peace. How much do you run after peace? Like, seek it. When there's conflict, how often are you looking for peace as the solution to the conflict? The outworking of the actions that we see in these verses spring out from inward mindsets that are in line with the mind of Christ. If, if you were to look back at Psalm 34, and I would encourage you to read Psalm 34 this afternoon, you would see a frequent reference to the fear of the Lord. That's to be this overarching mindset that guides the fact that, that we would Refrain from evil and do good. That we would seek peace and pursue it. It happens in Psalm 34, verse 7. It happens in Psalm 34, verse 9. It happens twice there. Psalm 34, verse 11. And we also see it in 1 Peter 2, verse 17. Flip back to 1 Peter 2, verse 17 with me if you would. In this Machine gun fire list of commands in verse 17. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. The third one, fear God. The attitudes and emotions in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, here in our text in 1 Peter. The the commands to be united in mind, to be compassionate, to have brotherly love, to be tenderhearted, to have a humble mindset. All of that traces their origin back to fearing God reverently and loving Him solely. I think that's why Peter brings Psalm 34 in. He brings it in. He quotes part of it. But he knows that his audience know Psalm 34. It's a familiar passage to them. It's something that they could go back and read. And as they read it, they would see, wow, if we're going to refrain from evil and to do good, we're not going to be able to do this unless we have the fear of the Lord. So when it comes to these actions in verses 10 and 11, how can we do a better job of keeping our tongue from evil and from deceit? Ask yourself, how quick are your lips or fingers to verbalize evil or deceitful words? In our digital technology, in our technological age, it's so easy. Yeah, we, we might not say anything. So you could say, well, I refrain my tongue from evil and my lips from speaking deceit because I've never talked to any of my 500 friends on Facebook. That's not what he's getting at here. It's, it's our communication. How often do you repent from evil? 
That's, that's what's behind that beginning of verse 11. Let him turn away from evil. That's repentance. Repent from evil and do good. When was the last time that you repented to God and sought forgiveness from a brother for a way that you had wounded or offended them? When was the last time that you repented to God and sought forgiveness from your spouse? When was the last time you repented to God and sought forgiveness from your boss? I acted in a way that was not pleasing to God. I serve him. He is my supreme boss. And I displeased him and I offended you. I apologize. Will you forgive me? Are you more diligent about seeking what you want or about seeking and pursuing peace? Another way we could ask that is whose priorities motivate you? God's priority to seek peace and pursue it? Or your priority? Would your friends or co-workers or would your brothers and sisters here at church, would they identify you as someone who seeks peace and pursues it? In other words, they would think of you as a peacemaker. Well, you might be thinking to yourself, I mean, where do these commands end? Is there an extent to these? Is there, is there some kind of out of bounds that, okay, if, if, if I'm wronged on this side, I'm okay to go back against. But, you know, is there some way of boundary? Are these rigid commands or are there boundaries to them? It's clear that these are not open-ended commands. These commands must be understood in light of the rest of Scripture. For example, unity with those who seek to divide is not what Peter is calling for here. Peter is not calling for sympathy that is for selfish gain. Peter here is not calling for a lonely, for a, yeah, not a lonely mindset. He's not calling for a lowly mindset that does not stand up for what is right. Peter here is not advocating for us to pursue peace at the expense of doctrinal integrity. So there are boundaries. And there's one other caution as we consider these commands, that these commands are not a means of earning favor with God. This is not some checklist that we ought to implement at home and say, okay, I I showed brotherly love today, I was compassionate, I was tenderhearted, I... Was pretty humble if I do say so myself. And I was, you know, I didn't disagree with myself or anybody else I came in contact with. And you have this whole list, and God, I thank you that I am not like that other person. No, these commands are not a way of earning favor with God. We don't do them in order to obtain God's favor. And that's clear if we look at verse 9 because we inherit a blessing, not earn a blessing or merit a blessing. Trusting in Christ results in God's favor and us desiring to keep His commands, not vice versa. Well, we wrap up our text in verse 12. We've seen inward inclinations. We saw some outward actions in verses 10 and 11. Third, we see spiritual awareness. We come to verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 12 begins with that word for, and that is the reason why someone who desires to love life and see good days should follow the admonitions in verses 10 and 11. God's not on vacation. He didn't have the wool pulled over his eyes. 
So we see here that there's first a positive proposition and then there is a negative proposition. The first one is that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. This is the motive for godly living. And we see that in 1 Peter 1 verse 17 where Peter writes, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Understand that God is observing what you're doing. But the fact that God's eyes are on us and His ears are open to our prayers speaks to the favor that those in Christ enjoy. That's the motive for why we should feel brotherly love or why we should feel tender-hearted or compassionate or seek to be humble or to, be, uh, to display unity. Because we're in a position to see good days. God does not have eyes. He does not have ears. These are anthropomorphic expressions that help us understand the favor that God shows towards the righteous and that his ears are open to their prayers. You may remember that at the end of verse 7, the command to the husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, there is a warning that you ought to do this so that your prayers are not hindered. And here Peter shows us those whose prayers are heard by God. That he shows favor towards them. So through the suffering of Christ, we are able to suffer with the favor of the Lord on our side. This means that the suffering will not last forever. This also means that to be a Christian is to be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. So, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But, and we have the negative proposition, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. On the other hand, those who do evil experience the Lord's justice and wrath. As favored a position as the first part of verse 12 communicates, the total opposite is pictured here. God is opposed to those who do evil. And again, Psalm 34, right after this quotation, verses 17 to the end of Psalm 34, draw that out and expand on what it looks like for God to express favor towards the righteous and for Him to express justice and wrath and opposition to the evildoers. So what we see in verses 8-12 through 12 is, is a progression of thought. First, we're told to be humble and compassionate. We are not to return evil for evil or insults for insults. The person who wants to enjoy life and good days follows those commands. Those are your marching orders. And, and if you have tasted that God is good, those commands will be followed. And then Peter wraps up by, by concluding that the favor of the Lord is evident in the relationship of the one who hears and obeys. That we are not just hearers of the word, but that we are doers of the word. So in closing, there is an implied application from all of these verses that, that is something that, that is not stated, but it's there. It is, it is implied. How can you and I Think of this. How can you and I follow the exhortations of these verses? Particularly verse 8. If we're never together. 
How can I be compassionate or tenderhearted towards someone that I'm not with or that I don't know? How can I be united with people that I don't have a relationship with? How can I express humility towards that? How can I count others as more important as myself if I don't have any others that I'm with to do that to? How can I express brotherly love if I don't have any brothers to show the love to? This passage implies that there is a community of believers gathering regularly. So a question for you, brother or sister in Christ. Are you in a position to obey these exhortations? Are you regularly gathering with your fellow brothers and sisters so that you can exemplify and exhibit the commands that we see here in 1 Peter 3, 8-12? through Finally, back to a question I asked at the beginning. Have you, friend, been changed by Jesus? The person who wrote these texts had been changed by Jesus. His life went from a wreck to someone who exemplified these things. He was willing to suffer. Friend, consider how Jesus bore your sins on the cross so that He could bring you to God. Come to Him in faith today. Experience forgiveness from your sin. Church, as we consider these commands in 1 Peter 3, we need help because there are tall tasks in front of us. So may God give us grace to follow Christ and His example in our inward inclinations and outward actions towards others. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for the opportunity that we have to look and study and to learn from Your Word. We confess we are not naturally inclined to the commands that You call us to in this text. Father, thank You that You have sent the Holy Spirit as our comforter, as our helper, as our interceder. Father, when there are times that we don't know how to apply this, would You give us wisdom? Would You give us patience with one another? Would You cause us to grow in our love for one another so that it might be said of us what is said in 1 Thessalonians 4.9 that we do not need to be taught how to love one another because we have been taught by God to love one another. Would You help us to express that love like we are family towards one another? Would You help us to express tender-hearted compassion towards others? Would You help us to be humble among one another? And would You cause us to be united with each other as we seek to live righteously in a hostile world? I pray this in Your name. Amen.